You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System. And I want to start out by saying a huge thank you to all of our dedicated listeners. And I want to welcome a very special co-host into the studio today. I have Sandy Werness from the Walter and Jean Boak Global Autoimmune Institute here with me. And I want to take a moment to say a giant thank you for all of the support you've given us over the last five years. We really couldn't do it without you. So thanks for being here today, Sandy. Great to be here. So today's podcast is about advances in new ways to diagnose celiac disease. One thing we struggle a lot with is making sure that people are getting a proper celiac disease diagnosis before starting a gluten-free diet. Oftentimes, patients will go on a gluten-free diet to try it out just to see if their symptoms improve. They all of a sudden feel great, so then they decide to go to the doctor to get tested, only to learn that they can't actually get tested for celiac unless they are eating gluten. But a new test is hoping to change that by allowing for celiac screening while someone is still gluten-free. To help our listeners, and me and Sandy, of course, better understand this new test, we have Dr. Jocelyn Sylvester, a gastroenterologist from Boston Children's Hospital, in the studio today. Dr. Sylvester is a true leader in the celiac community and is working on new research herself about the future of diagnostic testing. Welcome, Dr. Sylvester. Thank you. So let's start at the very beginning. Why is a test like this important, and why can't someone be on a gluten-free diet to run the currently accepted tests for celiac? So I think you've already told us why this test, why we need this test, which is that often people go gluten-free before they get a celiac disease diagnosis or before they go to their medical team to try and find out how to get a celiac diagnosis. And what's interesting about the current tests we have is that they all look for the damage that gluten causes. And one of the great things about celiac disease is that for most people, going on a gluten-free diet means that the damage will go away. And so if we look at them on a gluten-free diet, the test will look normal. The two main tests that we use now are antibody tests, and we measure those in blood, and then also intestinal biopsies, looking for uh, specific damage to the small intestine. And both of those will go to normal on a gluten-free diet, which means that if we want to diagnose people, then sometimes we actually have to put them back on gluten. And it's not just for like a day on gluten, it's for a while on gluten, right? That's right. So the best data we have is from a study that was um, conducted by Dr. Daniel Lessler at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And what he did was take adults with well-controlled celiac disease and biopsy them at the beginning and then gluten challenge them for 14 days. And the early biopsies didn't show any changes under the microscope, but on day 14, most patients had some changes, but not all had changes that would be severe enough to diagnose them if you hadn't done the baseline biopsy first. And so uh, a minimum of two weeks, but most guidelines recommend closer to six weeks or eight weeks. So if we need to see antibodies or damage to the gut to diagnose celiac, how will this new test work and what does it measure? So this test is unique because it's actually measuring cells that are involved in the immune response. So celiac disease is an immune disease, and it's triggered by gluten. And so patients with celiac disease, when they're given gluten, it activates their immune system. And it's a type of immunity uh, where T cells are 
involved. And so this test actually looks at whether or not patients have these T cells that recognize gluten. And so these T cells, uh, if they see gluten, are activated and cause damage. Um, but we're looking for these cells that can cause the damage and not the damage itself. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about the study from the Department of Immunology at Oslo University Hospital in Norway. Dr. Sylvester, tell us how the researchers looked at this test and what they found. All right, so this was a, a great study done uh, by Dr. Solid's group in Norway. And what they did was they looked for these T cells that recognize gluten in the blood of patients with celiac disease who were on a gluten-containing diet and patients with celiac disease who are well-controlled on a gluten-free diet, and people who had non-celiac gluten sensitivity and whom celiac disease had been ruled out um, to try and get an idea of whether or not the presence of these T-cells was associated with having celiac disease as opposed to the other tests, like the antibody tests that look at whether or not you have active celiac disease with immune stimulation and likely gluten exposure. And so what they did is they took blood from all of these patients and then they used something called flow cytometry to sort out the different immune cells in the blood and try and quantify how many of these T cells are a specific type of T cells. So they used different markers uh, on the T cells. T cells communicate with other cells and how they communicate is they have proteins on their surface which are kind of like flags. And so in research, we often try and figure out, all right, is this flag on the cell? Because that helps us find out what type of cell it is. And so they looked specifically for flags that showed that this T cell could recognize gluten with its T cell receptor. And then they also looked for flags that this T cell would localize to the intestine because some markers help T cells go to the intestine. Some help them go to the brain, some help them go to the lung. And we know that for celiac disease, it's the intestine that is important. Um, and so looking in this way, they were able to isolate these T cells that recognized gluten and went to the gut. But what they did was they went one step further, and they also looked to see if these were memory T cells. So when the body makes an immune response, for instance, if you have a cold or an infection, the body starts to make T cells, and if the stimulus is strong enough or long enough, then it doesn't only make those T cells to fight those with that infection, but it also makes these memory T cells, which stay around at low concentration, so that if you see that infection again, you can mount a faster immune response. And so what they did is they looked for memory T cells that recognize gluten and were intestinal T cells. How about the accuracy of this test? Did they miss anyone with celiac disease? And uh, what other kinds of things did they find? So what was really interesting about this study was that it's very hard, as we talked about earlier, to really know if people have non-celiac gluten sensitivity because so often people get symptoms, they go on a gluten-free diet, and they feel better, and then at that point we try and go back and turn back the clock and figure out if they have, if they have gluten sensitivity or celiac disease, and it might be that they had celiac disease and their antibodies are normal and their intestine is and so what was really interesting in this study was that some of the people that they didn't expect to have celiac disease, they actually found these T cells. And so when they dug a little bit deeper, it might have been that they actually were identifying people who may have been in the wrong group. And so 
uh, they might have been in the control group, but actually hadn't had a biopsy to show that they didn't have celiac disease. Uh, and some of these patients, they actually, after this study, went forward and showed that they likely had celiac disease and not gluten sensitivity. That's really interesting. So, you know, we talk about the genetic test for celiac disease a lot and how it's it's a screener so that, you know, if you don't have the gene, you probably don't have celiac, but it's not a definitive diagnostic tool. Are there any other conditions out there that this test might indicate for, or is this really specific for celiac? So this is really specific for celiac, and it's interesting because the genetic testing is actually looking for one of these T-cell markers, one of these plagues on T-cells. So the genetic cell test is looking for HLA-DQ2 and DQ8, and these are actually expressed on the surface of T-cells, and that's the plague on the T-cell that's able to recognize gluten. And so it's related, but we know that just because you can make HLA-DQ2 doesn't mean that your body is sensitized to gluten. And so because this is looking specifically for immune sensitization to gluten, it's much more specific than other tests. In comparison to a TTG antibody test, for example, well, people who have very high titers tend to almost universally have celiac disease. There can be uh, conditions where you can have uh, high titers that aren't celiac disease or lower titers that aren't celiac disease because tissue transmutaminase is present in almost every cell of the body. And so if you have active inflammation, you may develop antibodies to tissue transmutaminase even though it's not a celiac disease inflammation. So this is much more specific than the test we have now. Does it matter if you have HLA DQ2 or DQ8 or one copy or two copies, or does it matter for this test to work? Yes. So right now the test has been developed for DQ2, which about 95% of people with celiac disease have DQ2. The test uses the DQ2 as a fishing line to pull out the T-cells. And so if you have DQ8, then you won't recognize the DQ2 fishing line. So potentially, in order to use this test for patients with HLA-DQ2, so sorry, DQ8, it would have to be adapted by making the, the fishing line lower out of DQ8 as well as the DQ2 reported in the study. Is that something that's easy to do? Or, I mean, it, it seems like that's complicated. <laughs> is that hard or is it something that can easily be adapted? So it's, it's, it's technically probably possible, but it's challenging because these are proteins, and proteins are more complex than DNA. There's not only more amino acids, but chemically they're more complicated, and also how they fold is more complicated than DNA. And so while it's relatively easy for us to copy a gene or make a gene or copy DNA, actually making proteins and getting the proteins to fold properly and act as we would like them to is much more complicated. And so uh, this involves finding uh, a way to make the protein, which usually means a bacteria or um, a yeast often, and then purifying it and then getting it to work. So yes, it's theoretically possible, but definitely is something where you need technical expertise and is going to need some attention and tweaking along the way. So, so definitely not coming soon to a clinic near you. <laughs> okay, so let's say that this test, 
Well, okay, so first of all, where is this test in terms of being available to patients, and when could we see it in a clinic near us? So right now this test has been reported in this study, and there's no other studies reporting it. Uh, so we don't know if this test works, uh, if it's performed by other groups in other labs, which is one of the first steps toward developing a test because not everybody can send their blood samples to Oslo. So right. we need to have other labs try and replicate this study and show that the test works for them and also that they get similar results. As well, it's important to repeat this test in a larger group of individuals to get a better idea of just how sensitive, how well it picks up patients with celiac disease and how specific it is, how many patients with a positive test actually have celiac disease. So there's some development that needs to be done before it's something that would potentially uh, be able to be adapted for clinical use. And then there's also, uh, in every country, regulation related to laboratory tests. So there's some other administrative things that need to be done as well. I want to go back to the part about it not measuring the the DQ, people who have just a single copy of, of DQ8. How do you overcome that? And, you know, for these studies, are they HLA screening them before putting them into the study? Or how are they making sure that people would actually, the test would come back accurate? Yes. So before you can use this test, you have to genotype your patient for HLA DQ2 and make sure that they have at least one copy of DQ2. I mean, that feels like a major limitation and that right now we don't have to do that. And that test is not necessarily covered by all insurance companies right now. So it would be definitely an added expense to even make sure that that test will come back accurate. But I guess if you look at it in terms of having to do a gluten challenge or pay, you know, 50 or $100 for a genetic test, you might choose paying the extra money for the test than having to go back on gluten for several weeks. Yes, I think it's a it's one of those things where we will have to figure out what the cost-benefit is. This is potentially a test that might replace biopsy, and certainly endoscopy with biopsies and anesthesia and pathology interpretation is very expensive. And so if that's your comparator, then genetic testing and this test perhaps is not going to be as expensive. So not even including the personal costs related to going on a gluten challenge and feeling miserable, um, just the cost to insurance uh, might be higher if we're having to biopsy everybody. Absolutely. It seems as though also another benefit would be that the patient would be uh, able to be healthier. They can heal and they don't have to worry about prolonging their illness. Absolutely. Yes, potentially. So definitely if we find that this is very specific for celiac disease and there's not a lot of people who have these cells who don't have celiac disease, then potentially it could be a test used on people who are not consuming gluten or on a gluten-free diet to try and figure out do they have celiac disease or not. I think we really need to evaluate this test in other settings before we can really know for sure whether or not this test is really very specific for celiac disease. I mean, I'm just thinking about it in terms of you know, parents who have celiac disease, you know, it would have, I would have loved to have been able to run a test like this on both of my kids at birth, just to know, you know, as opposed to, to years of wondering, like, will they or won't they get this? Um, and just to know from the very, very beginning, whether or not they're, they're at risk. And so that's a, that's a great point. So 
genetic testing is really the only test that can help you determine whether or not your patient is at risk, your child or your patient's at risk for celiac disease because the risk for celiac disease is having HLA-DQ2 or HLA-DQ8. This particular test is looking to see, has it gone this one step further where this patient who has HLA-DQ2 has been sensitized to gluten and has T cells that recognize gluten. And so we don't know at what point those T cells are developed. I think that the consensus would probably be that people are not born with those T cells and that's part of the process that triggers celiac disease. And so just like you could have antibody testing at one point and it's negative and you don't have celiac disease and you have a normal biopsy, at some point you may develop celiac disease and your antibody level is up and your biopsy is abnormal. And so this test is probably more appropriate once the celiac disease has started and not to figure out if celiac disease is possible. I see. Okay, that's a really, really good distinction. So you have to have actually already had active celiac disease. There, ha- There's a s- probably damage in your gut or e- antibodies in your blood already at that point before this is going to come back accurate. Right. So this test is looking for whether or not your immune system recognize gluten, recognizes gluten and is sensitive to gluten. And we know that the vast majority of people who have HLA-DQ2 eat gluten and are totally fine and don't have a reaction and don't have celiac disease. And so something happens in order for celiac disease to to develop. And part of celiac disease developing is developing these T-cells. One of the uh, most interesting points of this study, I thought personally, was that a, a couple of people were identified in the control group meaning that the healthy non-celiac group identified begun, um, to begin with in the study um, as being gluten sensitive or even ha- having celiac disease, which goes to show, I think, that really the uh, predominance or the prevalence of celiac disease in our population is a lot um, greater than we, we really maybe realize in the outset. Yes, absolutely. That's a really good point. And we know that Many people who have uh, been sensitized to gluten and who have celiac disease may not be diagnosed. And so that's why doing these studies, it's really important that the control group be thoroughly evaluated, and that probably requires having a biopsy while they're on gluten, as well as for the non-celiac, any non-celiac gluten sensitivity group, because it's just really hard to know whether or not somebody who's susceptible to celiac disease has developed celiac disease unless you screen them or test them. And we know that some people may have celiac disease and feel asymptomatic. So just because a control feels healthy doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to not have celiac disease. Dr. Sylvester, I know you're interested in doing further research using this new test and, in fact, in uh, celiac disease, other aspects as well. And, in fact, congratulations on receiving the wonderful um, NIHK grant, which is a, a tremendous honor, and you must be very excited about it. What, can you tell us what you hope to learn from your research? Yes, absolutely, and thank you. Uh, it is very exciting to get NIH funding to look at celiac disease. We know that celiac disease, compared to other gastrointestinal conditions, is definitely underfunded, and I think that's part of the reason why the answer to many of your questions today is, well, we don't really know, or we're not really sure, or we need to do more research. So I'm very excited for the opportunity to do more research, and I'm definitely 
uh, interested in researching this test further. Don't currently have funding for this, but have been applying for funding. I am particularly interested in whether or not this test can be useful to predict the response to gluten challenge, uh, because as we discussed, when patients come in uh, and they're already on a gluten-free diet and everything looks normal, then our next step is often to put them back on gluten. And this particular study didn't look at whether or not we could take some blood on a gluten-free diet and then put a patient on a gluten challenge and whether that initial blood would predict whether or not the gluten challenge showed intestinal damage suggests the patient had celiac disease or not. That's just wonderful. I'm just um, so impressed and thrilled with really what you're doing and what you're planning. Thank you. I think the other thing that we can potentially learn with this test that's important for celiac disease is that right now there's something called potential celiac disease, which is when people have elevated antibody levels in their blood, but when we do a biopsy, it actually looks normal. And we have some great data from prospective studies, um, particularly the Teddy study, which includes sites in um, Colorado, where they've looked at babies that they've actually screened for this DQ2 and DQ8 from birth and whether or not they develop antibodies by just regularly doing antibody testing. And they found that lots of patients may have antibody levels for TTG that goes up and then goes back down and don't actually develop celiac disease. So I'm really interested in whether or not these patients who have a transient TTG elevation, whether or not they have these memory T cells that recognize gluten, or if this is somehow separate from the recognition of gluten. That's so interesting, Jocelyn. Well, I really hope that this research gets the funding it deserves and that your work will help us learn so much more about this autoimmune disease. So I want to thank you and thanks for the opportunity to talk about this today. Absolutely. So we want to thank you so much for all of this great information, Dr. Sylvester. It is all absolutely fascinating and marks such a big step forward for the celiac disease community. And thank you for joining me in the studio today, Sandy. It was so great to have you and your foundation with us for the recording. Well, folks, we are all out of time. I hope you all enjoyed today's podcast, and we will talk to you again next time. 